Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors creating nonfiction ranging from memoirs to historicals to biographies. I'm Seth Satterley, reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Kate Moore, whose book, The Radium Girls, published by Sourcebooks, who is the sponsor of today's podcast. So just to start, I wanted to ask, how were you inspired to go about writing about The Radium Girls? Well, I discovered their incredible story through directing a play about them, uh, which is These Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich, and it tells the story of the Ottawa dial painters. And I was just so struck by these women, their strength, their courage, their dignity. And as I was researching my production, because I wanted to make it as authentic as it could possibly be, I read everything that I could find about them. And so I realized that there was actually no book that focused on the Radium Girls themselves and told their story. And so I felt that that was wrong and that they deserved a book that championed them and examined who they were as individuals and also used their own words in letters, diaries, court transcripts to bring their story to life. So that's how I was inspired to write the book. So do you think that the the projects sort of um, bled together? Just doing the research for the play uh, automatically led you into wanting to make a more humanistic story of these women? Yeah, I think I was essentially just astonished that no one had ever done it before because it's a hundred years um, this year since many of the dial painters started work in the First World War. And I just couldn't believe that in a hundred years no one had thought to do it before. Um, so I think it was a kind of cross-pollination situation, really, because I was working as a director and I was doing this research and, you know, bringing the women to life in rehearsals and through improvisation and so on. And because I was also a freelance writer and I worked in publishing, I was an editorial director at Penguin Random House, I also kind of had this kind of dual part of my brain that was saying there is an amazing book to be written here that hasn't yet been written. And given I am a writer, why don't I do it? Um, so the, the, the two kind of bled together, the theatre and my professional work. Why do you think that gap exists? Do you think it has to do with the story just not being there? I mean, it, uh, as you say, or, or maybe you could talk about how much information you found once you started looking. Well, that was the astonishing thing for me. I mean, it was spine tingling at times doing my research because the Radium Girls' real words, you know, they're out there. They have been there all along. So whether it's through newspaper interviews that they did, whether it's through letters that got donated to museums that were sitting in dusty back rooms, you know, never having been read, the words were out there. Um, so why no one had done it before, I don't know. I mean, there have been... There's a couple of books on them before, um, Deadly Glow by Dr. Ross Mulner and Claudia Clark's book, which is about, it's also called Radium Girls, about industrial health reform, which started life as her dissertation and is a fantastic kind of very academic assessment of how the women changed laws in America. And it focuses in, entirely on what they achieved in that, in that regard. So I think people have been struck by the story before, but for whatever reason, and I don't know why that reason exists, because for me it was plain that this was a story that demanded, you know, greater exposure and that the women deserve to have um, a book that championed them. I don't know why it hadn't been done before, but I'm just very glad that it now has. 
Well, it's um just by reading your account of what happened to them, it seems like there was so much pushback against their stories coming to light. Do you think that that has something to do with it? Yeah, I, I think you're probably right, actually. And I think there is a temptation, particularly in things like occupational poisoning um, or any kind of injustice, to silence the victims. Um, I mean, I'm obviously speaking to you from the UK, where we've recently had uh, the Hillsborough disaster has just been exposed recently, you know, and the families finally have won justice um, in that regard. But for a long time, all of those voices were silenced. And I think you're probably right. The same thing happened to the Radium Girls. Um, but I guess theirs is a story that keeps rising to the surface. I mean, you say in your introduction that what you really wanted to do was tell their story and sort of mm. do justice to their story by then. How do you think your book will be received? What do you think its effect will be? Well, um, I hope... I mean, my kind of overwhelming motivation really was that they should be remembered, that that Grace Fryer and Catherine Donahue and Catherine Sharp and Amelia Magia should be remembered because kind of they'd got lost behind this anonymous moniker of the Radium Girls. You know, if you read about it, you know, sometimes people have heard the story before, but they couldn't give you a single Radium Girls name. And I hope now people have read my book or will be reading my book that they will know that in terms of what it effect it might have i hope it empowers people i hope they read it and think well if these girls can do it so can i you know we're living in a time at the moment where corporations are becoming ever more powerful um it is hard to fight for justice to fight to stand up for what we believe in and i think if these girls can do it these girls who were suffering from the most horrific, gruesome, physical poisoning, who were completely impoverished, who often weren't educated, who were dismissed, who were run down, who were belittled and, you know, rejected. If they can do it, if they can win justice, if they can make changes, then all of us can. So the book is divided. Part one ends with basically the knowledge that they can take this case to court. And the entire beginning of the book is, is sort of just setting the stage for how um, nefarious the companies were. How did you decide to make the book like that? That it was sort of a lead up and then it almost becomes a legal thriller at some point. Yeah, well, I, I think, I mean, that's the, you know, the thing about the Radium Girl story is there were so many elements to it. Um, part one is called knowledge. Um, and for me, one of the most important thing that you need to communicate is that these girls were fighting against the received wisdom of the age. So part one, in some ways, is a mystery. It's a medical mystery. So the girls are having to fight against all this propaganda that radium is safe. It's this wonder drug. You know, people are putting it on their faces in cosmetic. They're, they're drinking radium tonics and eating radium butter and milk. You know, it's a massive positive industry that's sung about on Broadway. And so when they start to get sick and everyone's saying it can't be the radium, the first part of the book, you know, what I had to do was set up, A, that it was this wonder drug and everyone thought it was marvellous, um, and then to kind of chart that knowledge, because until you know, actually it's not, and actually we've finally been able to prove the link, they can't possibly start the fight for justice, because you've got to kind of get over that massive hurdle first. Um, and then I think for me, the reason I did it in the three parts is because, as you say, you know, part two is called Power, 
And it is a very much a, a legal courtroom drama with, you know, the lawyers dramatically kind of making allegations in court and cross-examining their witnesses. And, you know, this incredible lawyer called Raymond Berry, who was this young lawyer, you know, not even in his 30s yet when he took on the case. He was the only lawyer to take it. He was an exceptional man. And so it brings to life his, um, you know, his achievements as well. And I think the reason it's called Power, without giving too much away, is because um, in focusing on, there are actually two courtroom dramas in the book. And the first one, um, essentially the girls settled out of court. And the reason it's called Power is because that was another ploy of the companies um, to try and a, choose when to fight their battles because the first court case got mass publicity. Um, so they wanted that to, to hush it up and make it go away. And so the reason it's called power is because it is looking at how these girls, you know, how much they had to fight against. It wasn't just finding a lawyer, finding a doctor who would say it was right, getting the case to court in the first place. They also then had to fight against all this other stuff as well. And then the final part is called justice. And that's obviously the part where um, we get the uplifting, in some ways, ending, or at least the recognition um, of what they went through and they win their case. So one just, this might be a morbid question, but you write that when you were researching and writing the book, you had pictures of everyone set up at your desk to make to remind you. And then in the middle of the book, there are, some harrowing pictures of what the radiation poisoning and what the cancers looked like. And then also these amazing, it seems like professionally taken in some instances and then some sort of more candid shots. And it's sort of eerie seeing them in juxtaposition with each other. And I was just wondering which pictures you used during the writing and how those pictures, how, how did you relate to those pictures when you were telling the story? Uh, the pictures I used were when, uh, largely when the women were healthy. I try, I tried to use, um, pictures you know the ones where it, it it's not the picture of the cancerous knee and it's not the massive jaw tumor it's the pictures of uh dial painters in white dresses sitting on a bridge across the river that runs behind their studio having a picnic um it's the picture of peg looney with her grandmothers and mother it's the picture of grace fryer um you know looking so beautiful with the pearls around her neck and this beaming you know joy of life that somehow seems to shine out of her eyes as you're looking at this picture um it was those pictures that i had up because as i say for me they've kind of got lost in history so people are interested in the gruesome stuff but what i was doing with the book is bringing those real women to life charting their journey from those picnics into the horror that followed and it was the women they are at the start of the book that I needed to identify to begin with so that we could go on that journey together. Amazing. And for maybe a last question in terms of trying to take away like a silver lining to all of this, when you, when you're looking at these other terrible disasters, like um, I feel like tobacco is the example that comes up in my mind and then climate change as well. Like what can we draw on from the Radium Girls for our own battles now when, when we're seeming to be fighting the same fight over and over again? Well, I mean, I think one message is that justice will out. That's what you have to, um, you know, they did, even though it took them, you know, 13 years to, to, to win a positive um, victory in court, they did actually get there in the end. Um, 
and they did win recognition for what they went through and they changed things for other workers. So I, again, you know, coming back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, we can feel very small trying to fight against big injustices, but the radium girls show that no matter how small you are, you can make a difference because of the radium girls. The second generation of dial painters were protected. The people on the Manhattan Project were protected. We now have this huge resource of scientific knowledge because they were prepared to be medically tested um, for decades of their remaining lives. Um, they make a difference. You know, their court case changed laws. Their court case protected other people, and it ultimately led to the establishment of um, OSHA. And just looking at that, you know, before it was created, an estimated 14,000 people were killed on the job every year. And today um, it is much less than that. It's around 4,500. So that's 10,000 people a year that OSHA has saved. Um, and that's just a, a small example of what the Radium Girls have done. So I think the takeaway message for everyone is no matter how small and powerless you feel, you can make a difference. So stand up for what you believe in and what you feel is right. Do you have any events uh, for this book coming up or are you going on tour? Yep, um, I've got a very, very exciting lineup. So I'm on tour in America throughout the entire month of May. Um, and I'm also going to be at Book Expo in New York. Um, I'm on the Library Journal Day of Dialogue panel. And I'm also at the AAP Library Reads Luncheon so I hope to catch up with lots of people then. Um, Sourcebooks, of course, have all the events. So I hope people will check it out and come along to hear more about these amazing women. Yeah, that's great. I will definitely see you at BA. Thank you. Thank you, audience, for listening. And join us next time on PW Lipcast. <laughs>